0: Uh, Listen, I said I was gone. I've been gone for two weeks. I left two weeks ago in about an hour. And uh, I've been camping for the last two weeks without a sink, without a mattress, without a proper toilet. Um, I've been camping. The first week was spent canoeing in the Boundary Waters with some friends from the church. Uh, the second week was spent with my family, uh, camp tent camping, just a, a few minutes from where we were in the Boundary Waters in Upper Minnesota and near Canada, and uh, you know what we decided to do because I was going to already be up there in the Boundary Waters. My wife and I just decided, okay, I will stay up there. They're going to dump me off in Duluth, about an hour south of where we were, and I'm just going to stay. As a vagabond, a homeless man in Duluth for, you know, 24 hours. And then the next day, Aaliyah was going to pick me up on her way up. And so that's what we did. I spent a week canoeing and sweating and enjoying myself without a proper shower for a week. And then a week ago this past Friday, I got dropped off in sort of the greasy industrial city of Duluth at 11 o'clock in the morning. And the van pulled away, and there I was, free as a bird, for 24 hours. And what did I do? Well, I, I got dumped off with my bag that I had carried and with my laptop bag, because I had to write this sermon sometime before now. And so there I was, sitting on the sidewalk, and my bag was ginormous. We're not metric here in the States, but it was 115 liters. I overbought. The bag stands about this tall. And I had all my belongings from the week of camping, plus Ken's cooking set, plus Ken's water purifier, plus my dad's saw, and all the other stuff I wanted to borrow for the second week of camping. And this bag is heavy. And my backpack's on top of it. And so I I just haul that thing up onto my shoulder, clip the strap, clip the gut band, and I start walking around Duluth. I'm going to see as much of the city as I possibly can. The city is built on a sort of hillside, like a lot of the European cities, and so every street you go back, you have to go at a sort of sharp incline up. The roads all angle up as you get out of the center of town. The center of town is right on the water. And so from about 11.30 to about 7 o'clock, I was hauling myself around Duluth with 120 pounds on my back, and it started fine, but by you know two or three in the afternoon, I could smell myself. You know? And if you're a guy and you can smell yourself, you know it's bad, right? It's one thing for your wife to say you smell. It's another when I'm standing outside of a bathroom thinking, I really smell. Throughout the course of the day, as it went on, I think people started wondering if I was a camper or if I was a hitchhiker, or if I was like upper-crust homeless in the city. That's how bad I was pouring sweat, I was dripping, covered. It was terrible, it was terrible. But it didn't matter because that night at 7 o'clock, I checked into a hostel and I took a shower. So that condition of kind of being stared at, the longer the day went on, I was stared at by other people. I think people were obviously wondering who I was and what I was doing there. That condition only lasted less than a day. Less than a day. Uh, Today, in our sermon, we are going to talk about a man who had a condition that lasted a lot more than a day. It was a condition of uncleanness. It was a man with a stigma that he didn't just carry around until he showered at the hostel in the evening. He carried around the stigma each and every day, until he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the man needed more than a shower. So would you please turn in your Bibles to the, the second book of Kings, Second Kings, chapter five, and stand with me for the reading of God's word? The Word of the Lord. Now, Naaman captain of the army of the king of Aram was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now this letter... <clears throat> I'm sorry, pardon me, saying, and now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he's seeking a quarrel against me. It happened when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean." But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not the Ereba and the Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more, then, when he says to you, "'Wash and be clean.' So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. When he returned to the man of God with all his company, and he came and stood before him, he said, "'Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now.' But he said, as the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman said, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon." When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said, "Go in peace." So he departed from him some distance. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to see ourselves in Naaman. Help us to recognize your magnificent, wonderful kindness to him, and through him to us. Father, we do confess that we are all leprous with sickness that goes deeper than our skin. Our pride writhes at the idea of of not being able to do, wash ourselves, to make ourselves clean by our own merits. Father, I pray that you would reveal our pride. Father, for those that have seen pride, we confess that the pride of life is strong, and that our old nature seeks to fight with what we know is right. And so we pray that you'd give us your Holy Spirit and strength to pursue you and your righteousness. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend, amen. Please be seated. When we read about Naaman, there are a few things that we should bear in mind Regarding the background, because if you are reading through the book of Second Kings, you'll likely come to this passage and read it, consider it, ponder it, and then move on without ne- necessarily uh, tracing who Naaman was and and what's going on in Israel at this time. So, I just want to highlight just a couple of facts that I think would be helpful for us. At this point in in Second Kings, in the history of Israel. Israel is in a a bad state of affairs. If you know the Old Testament, you know that God's people, the nation of Israel, was split into two sections following the reign of King Solomon. And from that point on, after only three kings, Saul, David, Solomon, we have a split kingdom, and the northern kings are all bad. Every single one of them reigns in a godless manner, in a way that leads the people of Israel astray. The southern kingdom, Judah, has a lot of bad kings and a few good ones. And so, we're reading about a king in the north. The king that's mentioned in our passage is a northern king. The king that's, that's, that's referred to, his name is Jehoram. And Jehoram took the place of another king, his brother, Ahaziah. Ahaziah was the son of Ahab. And if you know the Old Testament, you know that Ahab was a godless king. The stories of Ahab and Jezebel are only rivaled by that of Manasseh for their wickedness. We're told he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Ahaziah follows in his father's footsteps doing evil. He serves the Baals, he worships them, and he provokes the Lord. And because of this... Ahab was killed, then Ahaziah, after two years of being king, falls ill with a sickness, and God chooses not to heal him. And so after just two two years of reign, Ahaziah dies. Ahaziah doesn't have a son. And so the kingship, the reign of Israel, gets passed along to not his son, but his younger brother, Jehoram. So Jehoram is king in this chapter. Jehoram is the younger son of Ahab. That's a little bit of the context. Now, Naaman is no random figure either. He, it's not, he's not some guy who really appears out of nowhere. He was a great captain of the Aramean army, which had slayed Ahab just a few years before, at, at, at the least three years. And Jehoram's reign was, they think, 12 years. And so, at the very most, 14 years. So Whatever way you cut it, less than fifteen years before, our man Naaman was uh, was a warrior for King Ben-Hadad, and he fought against uh, he fought against Ahaz and put ah- Ahab rather and put Ahab to death. Now, understanding of these few facts should help us have a backdrop against which we can better understand one the fame and the notoriety, the significance of this man Naaman and two, um, the letter sending from King Jehoram of Israel to Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, and Jehoram's response to the king of Aram. Naaman was a significant military leader. Beyond this, we should notice that he isn't just a great war general, a captain, a man who knows how to fight. We should notice very significantly that As a leader, and this is a good test for any leadership, he has the affections and the trust of those that are above him as well as those that are below him. Do you notice that? This can't be taken for granted. The king loves Naaman. Just think of all the tension that occurred within Israel between kings and the leaders of their armies. It always seemed as if there was tension or the potential for some sort of coup. There isn't any such tension here. This doesn't just speak to Naaman's military skill. It speaks to his character. And the king likes him so much that when Naaman asks if he can go and see this man of God that his servant girl told him about, the king personally sends a letter on his behalf and adds to that letter 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. Now, clothes are... Cheap here, but at this time, you remember Samson, you know, had to kill men to obtain his sets of clothes. Clothes were not cheap. This is a very expensive gift. It's a lot of money. A talent, ten talents of silver. A talent was equivalent to 75 pounds of gold or silver. For some comparison, just for our minds, Naaman was given 10 talents of silver. The entire temple construction took 29 talents of gold. It's a lot of money. The king loves Naaman. But as I said, the king isn't the only one who loves Naaman. Naaman is loved and admired by those that are above him and below him. It's clear from our passage that not just one, but all of his servants think well of him, have affection for him, desire his good. Think of the servant girl a servant girl that had been taken captive and now is in the service of Naaman's wife takes pity on him and later the servants who attend him as he goes to visit Elisha when he turns in his rage they say you know father why are you doing this if he told you know they have they they have the kind of relationship with him where they actually stick their necks out for his good so you think about the man Naaman Naaman had a lot going for him He's successful in his job. He's got notoriety. He's got a whole entourage that he takes with him to Elijah. His presence commands respect. He's got the ear and the friendship of one of the most powerful kings in the ancient east. All this, and as the cherry on top, he's genuinely a good guy. How often does that happen? Those above him and those below him seek his good. That seems like a great life. It seems like this guy has it made. But, significantly, all of those things are not the emphasis of the story of Scripture. The Bible doesn't record the story about Naaman to recount all his victories and all his accomplishments. The story of Naaman is the story of a leper. Verse one makes it clear that for all the good, all the positives, all the success, for all the power, the wealth, He had a need. This was a man with a need. After telling of his valor and strength, verse 1 ends by saying, but, 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 a contrast that the author of Scripture, inspired by God, is putting there for us, but Naaman was a leper. Now leprosy shows up regularly in the Bible. It's a skin condition that would make somebody in Israel unclean and contagious. And when, Israel, when an Israelite had leprosy, the priest would have to evaluate him, and during that period of evaluation, the person had to isolate themselves from everyone around them. That's how serious leprosy was thought to be. In the New Testament, when Jesus encounters the ten lepers that come up to him, what's clear is that Jesus is teaching, and there's a big crowd around, and the text specifically says that the lepers were there, but they stood at a distance and shouted to him, Jesus, have mercy on us. So you think about what's changed from the time of the Old Testament to the time of the New. Not much. If you had leprosy, then you couldn't be around people. The ten lepers in the New Testament stood at a distance, we're told, and shouted to Jesus. Naaman was a leper. For all the good that he can put on his resume, leprosy was the defining feature of his life. You think about that. It was the defining thing. It was the stigma that rose above his success. He was the foe that he could not defeat with a saber, for as talented as he was. Naaman had a need that he couldn't shake. And each one of us is like Naaman. It's my hope and my prayer that we see ourselves in this man. None of us are a Syrian captain, at least to my knowledge. But we all have areas where we're strong. We all have things in our life that are put together, we all have sides of us that we like to show, angles that capture our figures just right, talents, abilities, pedigrees. Some of us, many of us, have married very well. Many have secured good jobs, and many of us are living lives that are seeking to accomplish something, and yet, these aren't the things that make us similar to Naaman. What makes us similar to Naaman is our uncleanness. That's the point of the story, our uncleanness. Just as a leper was unclean in Israel, so our sins, your sins, have made you unclean before God. You may not be a leper, but you are unclean. Sin has given you and I bloodstained hands, and for all of our washing, we can't wash it off. For all of the gloves that we might try to put on may cover the stain but it does nothing to remove the blood from our hands. That's the language that Scripture uses about our uncleanness. Our uncleanness is more pitiable than that of a leper. A leper's condition isn't the result of heart disease. His condition remains on the skin, whereas the uncleanness of our sins, the sinfulness of our hearts, penetrates to the core of who we are. And for all of our pretending and all the focuses on the areas of our lives that look good, the things that we want to show, the way that we want to appear, our uncleanness is not something that we can cure of ourselves. We can disguise it. We can mask it. We can put things over it. We can contour it and shade it. But we can't cure it ourselves. Not with medicine. Not with money. Not with going to church. Not with being better than the person next to you. Not by being a good human being and how I've heard so much about that recently. On our own, we are helpless to clean ourselves just as the great and powerful man Naaman was. And it is at this point, this point exactly, in the place of absolute, impoverished, helpless need that we come face to face with the providence of God. There is no such thing as chance in your life. There is no such thing as luck. No such thing as pure happenstance. There isn't, the scripture says, one hair that falls from your head unless God has ordained it to be the case. There's not one breakup with somebody that you greatly love or admire that has not been brought about providentially by God. There's not one advancement in your job that has not come about as the result of God's providence, his work in your life on your behalf. There is nothing that God is not behind causing and working in and through. God is always at work, even in the most unlikely of ways, to care and provide for us and to work in us that which is pleasing to him. That's what the Scripture says. And here we have a wonderful picture of God working through the most unlikely messenger. Think about this. The Arameans had gone out in bands and taken a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for then he would cure him of his leprosy. Do you understand the providence of God? Let's think about it for a moment. Because of a raid in Israel, A poor little girl is taken by an enemy force, separated from her family, and forced to serve in the house of a pagan foreigner. And yet, God had a purpose in this. The girl's captivity was part of God's plan for Naaman's salvation and healing. He was to hear about the man of God through the lips of this young girl. Her faith in God is an incredible example. You think about this young woman. She's not named, but think about her. Notice that for all the things that have been done against her, for all the wrongs that she has legitimately suffered in the process of God's sovereign hand and providence working in her life and in the lives of all those around her, she chose to be concerned for the welfare of her captor. She desires good for her master. What godliness and faith. When we're mistreated, how easy is it for us to meditate on the wrongs that we've suffered? How easy is it for us to nurture feelings of bitterness or mistreatment or unfairness? How easy is it for us to, to inflame Hatred for somebody that's done us wrong when there's no justice that we can see being dished out to them. What we see in this young woman is the pure example of love for an enemy, (laughs) loving her captor as herself, and obviously a sincere love for her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, God, the God of Israel. She told her mistress, I wish that my master were back in Samaria because then he would be able to meet the man of God who would heal him. What confidence? Obviously in the man of God and Elisha, but in the God that stood behind him, right? What confidence in God. How does she know this? You know, did... I, I, you ever pass signs that say, like, pet healing services on, you know, this... the fourth Wednesday of the month? You ever see garbage like that? Yeah. I have two. Did Elisha, like, have, like, a ministry where he cured lepers on the second and fourth Wednesdays of every month? What do you think? Significantly, I I had forgotten about this until I was kind of digging into this, this story. In Luke, we're specifically told that in the days of Elisha, there were many lepers in Israel, but none of them were healed except for Naaman the Syrian. Isn't that amazing? So this girl isn't just looking back at Elisha saying, man, I've seen him do this a hundred times. This is simple. This girl is looking at her captor and saying, if only he knew the man of God, if only he could experience the power of God, God could heal him. And she had never seen it done, not to an Israelite and certainly not to a Syrian. The faith of this girl is amazing. Her example to us is a treasure. It's wonderful. Be inspired and challenged by the faith of this young one. Praise God for his providential work in our lives. God is always working. There is nothing that happens without a specific intended reason and an opportunity to give glory to God and an opportunity to grow in closeness to God, an opportunity to be blessed by God even in the hardest of circumstances. What freedom and joy the idea of God's providence should be to us. God's providence is amazing and wonderful. To put this girl into Naaman's home, this faithful young one who trusted the Lord for his good, it's amazing. We see here the providence of God working and moving in details long before Naaman was ever healed. So Naaman takes the letter and the gold and the clothes and he goes to the king, and the king's response of Israel is altogether pathetic Am I God? What do you think? You know, this girl had the faith to believe that God might be able to heal this guy. The king of Israel didn't. Am I God that… What do you, why'd you send him over here to me? I can't do nothing. Faithlessness. And while this king is sort of having a pity party, moping, fasting, tearing his clothes, mourning, not fasting, fretting, God is working. Again, the providence of God. Verse 8, it happened. It happened. The king's in his palace receiving Naaman. Somewhere else in the city, it happened. That when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent word to the king. Naaman was still there. Elisha heard about it through some means, the providence of God working to accomplish his will. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And in verse 9, we read, So Naaman shows up, takes his whole entourage, his horses and chariots, and he stands at the doorway of the house of Elijah. And Elijah sends his, his, his messenger, Gehazi, to him, saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. Now, this promise of healing is simply the mercy and the kindness of God. Naaman, the Syrian general, had done nothing to warrant this kind of kindness. God didn't even require the money from him. He didn't demand anything. He simply communicated through the prophet Elisha that he needed to wash in the Jordan seven times, and that his flesh would be restored. No strings attached. There is zero reason why God needed to heal this man. This is the kindness and the mercy of God, and it extends to Naaman, and it extends to you. Do you know the kindness of God? Have you experienced this kind of mercy? At the end of the day, Naaman had no doubts about it he knew what he had experienced there was no question in his mind what debt of love he owed to the god of elisha for his work on his behalf and in his heart have you experienced that if you have come to god in sincere need god will always respond in this way to you jesus desires to heal you. That's the message of the gospel. Jesus desires to to wash you. He came and died and rose again, overcoming the grave, so that he might purchase you and wash you with his blood, like we sang about earlier, so that you might be clean. So we could suppose here at this point that Naaman would turn right around in his chariot and, and shove off for the River Jordan. But this Part in the story is actually where we start to see his real uncleanness. Do you understand what I mean? We're introduced to him as a leper, a man who is so unclean people wouldn't go near him. And that's the whole backdrop of why he ends up at the doorway of Elisha. And yet it's here, after hearing of God's kindness and mercy, that we start to get a glimpse of his real. Dirtiness, his filthiness, his uncleanness. And I hope that you see in Naaman yourself. We're told that Naaman was furious and he left. What could cause such a response to God? What could explain such anger in the face of undeserved mercy and kindness? I'll tell you what it was. You probably recognize it. His pride, his pride. His pride had been pricked, and it was pricked in a couple of ways. First, Naaman says, "I thought that Elijah would surely come out to me and stood and called on the name of the Lord his God, and waved his hands over the place and cure my leprosy." Naaman was a man of status, a man of prestige. He had shown up at Elijah's house with his whole entourage of horses and chariots. And you can imagine the spectacle. If we were to sort of translate Naaman into sort of our, not even our day, but our, our, maybe our parents' or our grandparents' day, you have the great General Patton arrive at your door with a train of tanks and his infantry and his flags and the, the power. You would expect fanfare. You'd expect some, some pomp. You'd expect Elisha to put on a better change of clothes. We all remember when a famous pastor was, you know, sort of courted by our president and the way he acted with the president a few years ago. You can imagine something like that happening with Elisha, a little bit of showboating. He's standing on the pastor's doorway asking for help. What does Elisha do? How does Elisha respond? This is very important. He doesn't get up to answer the door. He's not lazy, it's intentional. He does not get up to answer to the door, but instead he sends a messenger to the door to relay God's message to Naaman. And now we see through Elisha that Naaman is getting a dose of the medicine that he needed before he was even told to go and wash. Before the instructions are given to him about washing, he's getting some medicine. And what is that medicine? Well, the medicine is a lack of attention and a dose of humility. Elisha intentionally does not bother to come to the door to greet this famous man, this important man, this dangerous man. He sends a servant. And so for a second time now in our story, take note of this. God's message comes through a servant to this man of great status. First, the servant girl. Next, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha. <laughs> If Elisha sending his servant to Naaman to deliver that message was a left hook, then telling him to go wash in the uh, Jordan was the, the, the uppercut that knocked out Naaman's composure. It was all over. There was nothing majestic about the Jordan River. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't known for being clean. Everything about Naaman's experience since he's come to the house of the man of God has been completely humiliating and now dignified for a man of such stature and his pride will not have it. He's furious, and he's enraged. Notice how many times the passage again makes note of how angry he was. And this, again, is where his real sickness and your real sickness is seen. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean, he says. So he turns, and he goes away in a rage. Now, these two rivers that he is referring to were known for being clear rivers that flow down from the snow-covered mountains of Amanis near where Naaman had lived. What I want to say is that waters of our own will never wash away the stains of our sin that we've soiled ourselves with. There is nothing in our own land that is able to clean us to this point. We can't clean ourselves. We can't bathe ourselves in anything but the living water of Jesus Christ. We need to be born again. We need to have spittle. You remember the story of Jesus giving sight to the blind man. He stoops down and he he doesn't just wave his hands. Again, he spits on the ground with his saliva and makes a mucky paste, the kind of thing I'd yell at my sons for doing. And he applies it to that man's eyes to be clean. The foolishness of that, We need to be submerged in the foolishness of Christ if we are to actually be cleaned. Naaman, at this point, is not willing to submit himself to the foolishness of Christ. He's not willing to lower himself to go down into that Jordan River. He's got better rivers at home, spring-fed. Ain't no algae in there. I'm going there at this point. He's not willing to have Christ. We need to be submerged in the foolishness, the humility of Christ if we are to be cleaned. Why? Well, because the door to encountering Christ is very short. It's made for those that are like children. I was thinking about the, the, the... Anybody go downtown to the Toledo Library? Yeah, yeah. If you guys have children, you've probably been up to the kids' floor like I have, and you think about the little doors everywhere. They've got this whole section with little doors, you know, about yay high. <clears throat> that's what i thought of when i was thinking about this passage little doors the door to encountering christ is like the doors at the at the downtown library and they're short because you must be small in your own estimation if you're ever going to fit through in fact you must view yourself as nothing that's what jesus says so much so that you would throw yourself in The Jordan, a a dirty river, sort of analogous to the Maumee. It's like telling Micaiah to go bathe in the Maumee River and come home clean. That sort of thing. You must trust God to be the one to make you clean. That sort of humility. Bathing in the Maumee and trusting that God will clean you through that muddy water because he said so and nothing more. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Galatians. The Lord is exalted. He regards the lowly. He gives them his attention. He cares for them. He he regards them. But the haughty, the proud, he only knows from afar. If Naaman wished to be saved, if he wished to be healed, he would have to humble himself. And it wasn't that God was unwilling to humble Naaman. Recognize this. God had already told him, go. Go wash seven times and you'll be healed it was that Naaman was unwilling to go and do it his pride stood in his way though Naaman though is initially enraged the story does end well with all the hope in the world just like Jesus offers to us he's initially enraged but we see a change in him upon his servants' urgings they say again my father had the prophet told you to do something great had you not have done, would you not have done it How much more so when he says, go wash and be clean? If he would have said, go win a war, you would have marched off drawing your sword. But you're not willing to go wash in some water? Come on. Here's the crux of it doing something great reflects on us greatly. Doing something simple or nothing at all reflects on God greatly. The reality is that Naaman's true problem was not his leprosy, it was his pride. It was his pride. God didn't say to do anything but simply obey what he was told. His pride was getting in the way. It wasn't a skin disease that would ruin him. It was a heart disease of sin that he really needed to be cleansed from. And that's the story we need to take away from Naaman. Naaman needed a salvation that went went further than skin deep. And somewhere between verses 14 and 15, somewhere in that space of time, He receives that salvation. He becomes a changed man. He went back and told Elisha, Behold, now I know that there's no God in all the earth but in Israel. Notice when he had said, I thought that Elisha would come out to me and call on the name of his God. Now it's my God. I know that there's no God but the one in Israel in the entire earth, and your servant will no longer offer any burnt offerings, nor will he, he sacrifice to any gods but to the Lord. This is a recognition that that Jehovah, that the Lord, the God of Israel, is the God of all creation. The God of Elisha is now the God of Naaman. But I want to ask you, is he your God? Have you been cleansed of your sins? Have you felt the sanctifying work in your life? Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Do you know that that promise from Isaiah is true for you? Has Jesus washed the blood off your hands with his living water? This is a question that we must all answer for ourselves. Young people, you can't look down the aisle, the road to your parents and seek to have them answer it for you. Nor can you let what your friends think about you satisfy your answer to this question. His servants, Naaman's servants, could not put Naaman in the water to be healed. They encouraged it, but they couldn't do it for him. This was something he had to do. Are you willing to come to God and receive from him the healing that you need without money and without price? Are you willing to drop your pride and in humility call out to Christ? And at this point, I I just want to say Beware of a desire for a salvation that only goes skin deep. It's in all of us. Beware of the desire for a salvation that only deals with the spots that people can see on your hands and on your arms and on your legs. Many want Jesus to affect the surface level. There are many who want to change their outward appearance. Many apply healing ointments to the surface of their life even Christian things, to the surface of their life that fail to penetrate to their soul. They want to look good to those around them. They want to be seen in a certain way. They like the pride that comes from being morally superior to those around them. That's a real thing. There's a reason, a selfish, wicked reason to do what's right sometimes. I'm not saying that you should do what's wrong for the sake of doing what's wrong. But don't trust your hearts on this. We like to feel superior to those around us. We like a piety, righteousness, virtue that feeds our pride rather than true piety that comes as a result of seeing ourselves like I saw myself for those 10 hours in Duluth, just a stinky, sweaty, undesirable mess. I saw myself physically as the man that women shielded their children from. That happened right outside the bathroom. But spiritually, do we see ourselves as that, in a need of Jesus Christ, in need of his healing power? John, John says that we know that we're sons of God because God's love abides in us and we love Jesus and we don't view his commandments as burdensome. Do you want to be pious on the surface so that people think well of you, or is doing what's right not a tactic for, you know, manipulating what people think about you, but it's just the joy of your life. It's doing what's right, a privilege that you receive as a son or a daughter of God. Don't underestimate the pharisaical pull on your heart. There's a razor edge between love for Jesus and his righteousness and a love for yourself and for your self-righteousness. We need a salvation like Naaman needed. We need a salvation that goes further than skin deep. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've given us such an example of humility in yourself. Oh, we can't begin to comprehend the the majesty and the mystery of your incarnation, fully God and fully man. Our minds aren't capable of, fa- of imagining such an unfathomable reality. And you humbled yourself even to the point of death on a cross. And so we pray that as you, being God, did this, that we would not be satisfied with anything less than ourselves, Father. We have so much to be humbled by, our own sins and and, and and transgressions and lack of ability there's so much to cause us humility naturally and so we confess our pride and we pray that you would give us humility that we you would give us a desire each one here a desire to be washed uh, with your living water that it would penetrate through our pores deep to the core of who we are that we would never be satisfied for cheap imitation of righteousness or 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 virtue that is only put on for the sake of how it makes us look or appear to others. Father, we know that you will give us strength and establish us as we are humble, and so we pray that you would give us strength to embrace humility in our lives, Father. May pride not bind and blind anyone here, not any of our children, not any adult here, Father. We pray that you would work your Holy Spirit in us with power. In Jesus' name, amen.